Well, good morning, Gospel Hope, and I guess Happy Thanksgiving is still in order. I don't know exactly what they call the Sunday following. I know we got Black Friday, Cyber Monday. I don't know what we call the Saturday and the Sunday, but nevertheless, uh, it's good to be back with you. I hope that you are all safe and that uh, you've enjoyed time uh, with your families, whether you did it in person or whether you did something virtual. Um, we just praise God for the ability to have hearts of gratitude. And even though, you know, Thanksgiving is not necessarily a uh, Christian uh, holiday uh, per se, I think gratitude is a place where we can definitely model um, a heart toward God for our culture that draws them in and causes them to look more carefully um, at our lives. And, uh, and, and hopefully that gratitude isn't just a generic one, but it's one that uh, redirects our, uh, our affections back toward God, who is a provider for us all. He provides uh, both for the just and for the unjust. And so um, I pray that we have been gospel people in the way that we have shown our gratitude during this Thanksgiving season, and that we don't allow the um, kind of the momentum of commerce and just that slippery slope right into the Christmas conversation and how much we can buy and how much we can spend. I hope that doesn't rob us of true hearts of gratitude during this season. So, um, but anyway, uh, we are back or we are continuing now in our series uh, in the book of Daniel. And before we open the pages, I just wanna pray for us for a moment. Um, Father, in the name of Jesus, I'm always thankful to handle your word. I believe your word is exactly what it testifies on its own pages, that they are spirit and they are life, and that by hearing them, we are cleansed. Uh, by following them, we are blessed. Um, by reading them, we are made wise unto salvation. I believe that testimony, O oh God. And if there's any gaps in my game where I'm really not responding to your word in the way that I should, I pray, O oh God, that you would just kind of meet me in those blind spots. And Lord God, uh, sanctify me. Make me a better believer, a better son uh, before you, a better servant to your people. And I pray the same for uh, those who are uh, listening to this message. Lord God, that wherever our faith is, is kind of fallen or, or maybe frayed on the edges when it comes to the truth and the efficacy of your word, that you're, you're helping us in that area oh God, uh, making us a people that are more forthright in our trust in your word, and thereby we are also being more forthright in our faith, Lord God, and more earnest in our faith towards you. So Lord God, let your word do what it does. Let it be good for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that your people may be thoroughly furnished unto every good work as we now walk through uh, these uh, handful of chapters in the book of Daniel. This is our earnest prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. So, uh, as you know, we have now worked our way to the midway point in the book of Daniel. If you've been paying attention at all throughout the course of the series, or maybe this is your first time uh, kind of dialing in with us, uh, we've been walking through the book of Daniel, and we've gone through chapters 1 through 6, and there's a total of 12 chapters here. And so chapters 1 through 6 have this kind of tone thematically. We've zeroed in on the life of Daniel very personally. We've watched God's work through Daniel and his companions as they live in this fallen regime of Babylon uh, as exiles. And we've seen God work and do some awesome things through the fiery furnace, the lion's den, uh, or the, uh, the actual bringing them in as young men uh, under some very egregious circumstances. We've seen God deliver them from impending massacres. But the, the, the focus of the scriptures have been very much on the personal triumphs of Daniel and his companions amid these uh, fallen 
uh, uh, regimes of fallen times. When we get to chapter 7 through 12, the tone changes, the theme changes a bit. And what we start to notice is that while God is still working through Daniel, the emphasis is less on the personal triumphs of his faith, but more now looking prophetically uh, at how God wants to work in the world and kind of the big picture of redemption. It's an interesting tone. Uh, the book of Daniel provides us with some of the most rich uh, eschatology of the entire Old Testament. Can you say eschatology if you're at home? Try to spell it, type it in the keypad, do what you do. Eschatology, does anybody know what that is? Okay, eschatology, type it in. It's the study of the, of the end times or the study of last things. And so end time studies have a tendency to impact all of us differently. And if I were to just kind of look at the spectrum of responses to end time studies or end time theology, uh, the two great extremes are these. There are those who on one hand who have looked at end time studies and said, you know what, that's very complex, scary, kind of gritty, uh, I really don't understand all of the figures and the symbols and the bears and the animals and the crowns. And I don't understand all that stuff that I see in the book of Revelation or even here in the, in the last few chapters of Daniel. I don't get all of that. And because we don't understand it, we choose a posture of willful ignorance and say, you know what, Lord, I'm just going to live my life faithfully as I can now. And I'm just going to not try to understand a lot of the this chunky stuff that comes out of the text of uh, when we're talking about eschatology in the end times. But then on the other end of the spectrum, there's another extreme response to eschatology or the study of last things or looking at the scriptures when they talk to us prophetically about end times. The other response on the other end of the spectrum are those of us who look at it and we find ourselves frightened deeply, gripped with great anxiety because the material can be very gritty. As we think about the apocalyptic nature of things, right, the end of the world, and obviously some of that fear is because so much of our theology, unfortunately, has been uh, infused with uh, entertainment. That is, the most that we know about uh, the apocalypse has been provided to us through our, our movies, right, where the apocalypse isn't theologically focused, it's environmentally focused, right? You know, where it's, oh, we as a human race have lived negligently and now there's some massive, you know, uh, tidal wave that's coming as a result of uh, something going along, in, you know, ecologically in the environment that we did wrong. Or perhaps there's some, you know, massive weather uh, trend that's going to come and destroy the world. Or, or on the sci-fi end, there's these aliens that have come and decided that they're going to suck all of the vital nutrients out of the earth. And we, the human beings that are trying to stop them and fight them, we are just these casualties, right? You know what I'm talking about. Eve, so our entertainment genre stands in the background of all of our hearts and minds and has somewhat um, uh, sullied our, our theology when it comes to end times because it's never a, a, a happy thing. It's always grossly destructive and you don't know who the hero is and there's always carnage and all of this loss. And so, uh, but when we look at the Bible, when we look at the Bible today, Here's our objective, and here's what I hope will happen as we look at the studies of the end times. I hope for that person that is being willfully ignorant because they just don't understand it, and the person that is being uh, worried to death, I hope that I can get all of us to kind of come to the center. And for the person that is gripped by the weight and the gravity of end times or eschatology or the apocalypse, for those of us that are gripped in that way, I don't want you to lose 
your sense of seriousness, but I hope that your convictions about the weightiness of the end time are cushioned and comforted by the faithfulness of God in that it's not like the Hollywood apocalypse where it's the human beings are going in alone, but that your faith comes alongside your conviction and says, yeah, but it's our God, if we are in Christ, who is still working as the grand conductor of all of this apocalyptic material. And for those of you who sit on the other end of that willful ignorance spectrum, I hope that as you come close and say, you know what, I'm gonna step into these apocalyptic conversations. I'm going to look closely at eschatology, the study of in or last things or end times. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come a step closer. I'm not going to be ignorant of it because I believe that by enhancing my understanding of that, that it will improve my ability to live like I need to right now. You see, and that's really the point of today's message. And that is the, the, the big idea for us today is I believe that a better understanding of the end times provides us with a more consistent faith in the meantime. I'll say it again, or maybe you can say it with me. A better understanding of the end times actually provides us or produces a more consistent faith for us in the meantime. If I could, by way of illustration, um, maybe take a look at the stock market and some of its behaviors of late. Uh, the stock market is trending well. And uh, it hasn't always trended well, but it's trending well right now, as far as I know. And uh, there are two major extremes when it comes to how people invest uh, in the stock market. There are those who look at the stock market and they are called day traders. No offense if you're a day trader out there, do your thing, do you, just be cautious and, and make sure you're abiding by all of the necessary financial wisdom and being a good steward before the Lord. But if you're a day trader, what's the deal? You want to maximize your returns in the shortest period of time. And so the day trader is looking at the day-to-day -day fluctuations in the market and always trying to catch the high points right away, trying to sell low or trying to sell, uh, sell high and buy low. And it's a life of great economic anxiety, always watching the waves of what's happening in the market. And then there are others who in the market, because of its deep fluctuations, find themselves always putting your foot in and taking your foot out always inconsistent in your investment sometimes being in sometimes being out when things are going well you're all in but when things are going low you're you're so tempted to pull your money out no you haven't tuned into the gospel hope portfolio management channel this is still pastor rod with gospel hope church but i do believe that there is a nugget of wisdom to be found in the way that one might invest in the stock market that is a good overlay for the way that we should understand end time theology you see the most balanced kind of wisdom when it comes to working within the markets is said to be this if you look at the market long term if you look at the the, the markets for the, the the stock market for the entire time that it has existed and all of the data that we have Historically, it's always trending up. And while you do have those moments where it's up and down and low, it's always a net positive. And so rather than uh, investing uh, or putting your toe in or putting your foot out or being a day trader, you're told to just incrementally, consistently invest over time, and that's where you see the greatest benefit. Well, that's not financial uh, advice that I'm trying to give. I'm trying to help us see an illustration of our own faith. You see, when you think life and Christianity is going well, if that's the only time you're willing to be fully vested or to be all in, 
That's not the kind of faith you want to develop. The Lord is always about the business of growing his people and making us more like the Christ, whether things are up or whether things are down. You don't want to be a day trader of faith, and you don't want to be a fear trader of faith. You want to be a person who is consistently vested in deepening your trust in God over time, regardless of what's happening in the meantime. And that's why I believe that developing a better understanding of the end times, which gives us a more macro view of the story of redemption, a macro view of the story of redemption allows us to live more consistently in the meantime. So better understanding of the end times enables us to live with more consistent faith in the meantime. So we're going to take a look today at Daniel chapter 7 through 9. It's a significant chunk of text, but I'm hopefully going to be able to condense it for you at a high level that allows us to not stumble over the imagery and the ideas, but to understand just a little bit more about the end times and hopefully grow to be more consistent believers with an investment of consistent faith in God in the meantime. All right? So if you've got your Bibles, uh, Daniel chapter 7 uh, provides us uh, with uh, just kind of an interesting turn in the way the text has been speaking to us. Remember I said that the first six chapters have been very locally focused on the faith triumphs in Daniel and his companion's life. But now in chapter 7, there is this change where God is awakening or arousing Daniel from his sleep, and he's having these dreams and visions, like the ones that he would interpret for the great kings, and these dreams and visions are actually causing him somewhat of uh, anxiety because he doesn't fully understand them. And so he appeals to God to be made to understand them. And so let's just take a read here with uh, uh, just a handful of verses from the book of Daniel. It says in Daniel chapter 7, beginning with verse 1, in the first year of Belshazzar, the king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions uh, of his head as he lay in his bed. And then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. And Daniel declared, I saw uh, my vision by night and behold, four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea and four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. And then uh, as I looked, its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one like a bear. And it was raised up on one side and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And it was told, arise and devour much flesh. And then after this, I look and behold, another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. And after this I saw in the night visions, behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadfully, exceedingly strong, and it had great iron teeth, and it devoured and broke into pieces, and it trampled, and, excuse me, and, it, and as it stamped uh, what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. And I considered the horns, and behold, there came... Among them, another horn, a little one, before which the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, uh, in the horns there were eyes, that eyes like eyes of a man, and mouth that were speaking things. We'll pause there, and I'll kind of begin to summarize what happened. So this dream, or this vision, which was quite frightening and dreadful, even for Daniel, continued where he even saw an image in later texts of the Ancient of Days, which is, uh, that is, he was looking at God, or the Son of God himself, sitting on his throne, and he saw the Lord in, his in, in, in a glorified state. And 
and this, this Lord, as he saw him in a glorified state, was able to kind of bring calm or to, to take dominion over these beasts that were thrushing and thrashing and fighting. And then Daniel goes later to says, okay, well, what is the interpretation of these things? And so uh, um, he, he receives an interpretation of the vision in verses 15 through 17. And let's look carefully at this for just a moment. As for me, Daniel, my spirit was, was, in me, was within me was anxious. The visions of my head alarmed me. And I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me an interpretation of these things. The four great beasts are four kings who shall rise up in the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever and forever. We'll hard pause right there. So you have this interpretation that these four massive beasts of uncanny type and anatomy that we've never heard or seen before represent these four great kings or kingdoms that will come. What is the purpose of all of this? Why is God speaking in this way? Well, we know that the prophecy of Scripture has a very particular function that it should serve in the lives of believers. Prophecy of Scripture is supposed to provide believers with this. It is to prepare us, to provide for us, and to provoke us. Any vision, any idea, any prophecy of Scripture that we read, we need to take note that this prophecy of Scripture, the way God is speaking to us through prophecy, through these visions, in these passages, it is designed to prepare God's people, to provide something for God's people, and to also provoke something within God's people. That is the nature of prophecy virtually always, whether it's in forms of vision or a prophet coming to town. To do what? You can type it in here if you got it in your notes. This is on the screen if you're following. It is to prepare God's people it is to provide for God's people, and it is to provoke God's people. Those are three core functions. Not the only, but these are three core functions that the prophecy of Scripture is intended to deliver into the lives of believers. Uh, not long ago, I had a chance to go on a fishing trip with my family. And uh, while we were on the fishing trip, uh, we were met by the captain. And the captain came out and made an announcement to us directly. He told us, he says, you know what, guys? Uh, the, the seas are a little bit choppy today. It's windy. And as a result of it being windy, it's going to impact how far we can go out. And it's also going to have an impact on the kinds of fish that we can catch. But we are going to catch fish. That captain's announcement kind of reminds me of the function of prophecy. And here's how. When the captain says that the seas are going to be choppy, he is making us aware of an experience that we have not yet had or felt. He's letting us know. And it is our responsibility to prepare in light of that. If you're a person that is prone to motion sickness, you know that when you hear those words that the seas will be choppy, then you had better dose up on your Dramamine, right? We prepare in response to these words being provided to us about what's coming. Not only that, if you're a person who maybe you aren't uh, uh, prone to seasick, but maybe you don't have good balance, you know you had better find a seat on the boat where you can grab a hold of something. It's just going to be rocking back and forth. Why? Because these words of what's coming are intent to not frighten you, but to prepare you for the experience that you're about to have. But not only that, it also is intended to provide us with something. 
You see, to provide us with a more refined perspective of what's about to happen. We may have been walking up to the boat and before the captain's prophecy or before his pronouncement, we may have been walking up with one expectation of how the trip was going to go, but now we have to refine our expectations, what we hope to accomplish during this trip based on what the captain has said. It's going to dictate how far we can go out, how deep we can fish, and the kind of, and the volume and the type of fish we're going to find. Prophecy does the same thing. It prepares us, if we heed it and listen to it, it provides for us refined expectations so that they are not generic, but we can have a more crystal clear view of what God's trying to do. But it also should provoke something in us. As we're going out and we're fishing and we're finding out that the captain's words are correct, wow, it is bumpy out on these waters, but we already knew this, so we are not shocked. I can trust the captain in his wisdom. And oh, look at this. We're fishing and we're finding fish of the type that he said we would find based on the distance that we're able to go out. I can trust the captain. This is what prophecy is supposed to do. The Lord is our captain. He is giving us a pronouncement through prophecy that should prepare us for future events. And so Daniel is now in a position to prepare the people of Israel for these dynamic political changes that will be taking place in their lifetime as a nation. These four beasts or these four kings, uh, specifically the advancement of great kings that will come and it may change life as they know it. But when the changes come, even if they're not comfortable, at least they're not caught off guard. That is the function of prophecy, to prepare God's people. A second provision, as we know, is to provide. Prophecy provides God's people with a refined hope in the rule of Christ. Notice that one of the visions, I summarized it, I didn't read it fully, but I summarized that Daniel also not only saw four beasts that were thrusting and fighting and moving about and having dominion, but he also saw one who had ultimate dominion, and that was the Son of God or the Ancient of Days, and he saw him on his throne and that before him with this fire that was devouring everything else. And so within that same preparation for these fierce future events of these four coming kings, we're also given a more crystal clear view of the Lord Jesus Christ in his glorified state. This is important for us as believers because none of us have seen Jesus in his glorified state. Not a one. Not a one of us. We've, we've read about Jesus in the Bible as a suffering servant. We read about him as a gentle lamb. We read about him as a savior. We read about him as a uh, one who dies for us voluntarily, substitutionarily. We read about him as one who satisfies the wrath of God against us. But what we've not done is we don't all, we all don't, none of us do, none of us have a refined view of the Lord Jesus Christ. Your view is not bad. It's like moving from 720p to 4K, right? It's the same show, it's just one of them is radically more clear. And prophecy is intended to do that for us, to provide us with an increased sense of clarity, graphic definition, so that we can appreciate more powerfully what the Lord is doing through his ancient of days or through his Christ and through his person. And so uh, uh, that is the purpose of prophecy, to provide greater clarity and a refinement of hope. Ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, let me tell you this. Jesus, as you knew him when you saved, were saved at the age of 8, 9, 10, 18, 20, 28, whatever year you got saved, that Jesus is the same Jesus. But as you grow in him and, and read the words of prophecy of Scripture, 
your view and your hope in Christ should be more refined. Your hope should be more refined. In other words, not just the amount of detail that you know about him, but the degree of hope, the specificity of your hope should be increasing as you read the scriptures. This isn't just devotional narrative to, to entertain us. It is designed to refine our hope so that our hope becomes less generic and more specific in what our hearts are launching toward in the Christ. But prophecy is intended to do something else, not only to provide for us uh, a view of future events or to uh, um, provide us, excuse me, prepare us for future events or provide us with a more refined hope, but to also provoke in us a deeper trust in the triumph of God's people in Christ. You see, in verses 27 and 28, Daniel says these words in chapter 7. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High, and his kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. So you have this beautiful view on one end of the chapter, this, this frightening view of all of these beasts. Then you then have this middle view of this image of the Ancient of Days in his glory, and then you have this closing view of the people of God, under his care and dominion, also having dominion. And that kind of display in prophecy is intended to provoke within us a deeper trust that of all the stuff that we see going on in the news, whether it be this news or whether it be that news out there, that you have a God who is provoking deeper trust in his plan of triumph for his people. The Bible tells us clearly and explicitly in the book of Matthew that this church that has been built on this rock of a proper, permanent, clear confession and understanding of Christ will prevail against the gates of hell. Nothing will stop it. That's what the Bible says, that there will be a triumph. The book of Revelation goes forward to say that, that the, the people of God will overcome by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. Over and over again, eschatological or last times literature remind us of the triumph of God's people in Christ. And that should deepen our trust in the meantime, even if we can't see everything that God is doing. He's given us this sneak preview of how it'll end in the end times. And so this is not only a great need for preparation, provision, and provoking deeper trust for Israel, who's currently living in exile. Remember this now. This book's first audience is Israel, who are living in exile. They are enduring a great degree of distress during this time, and their hearts may be sinking or folding beneath them, and their faith may be failing, or indeed it is failing, unless the Lord comes along and gives them a prophecy of what things will look like in the future to deepen their trust in the fact that God knows what he is doing. But isn't it, it isn't just Israel who needs this kind of preparation, provocation, and also a provision of refined hope. We do too. We all need regular refreshers in our readiness for this life, in our hope of this life, and in our trust in God. We all need regular refreshers. Uh, the New Testament uh, speaks to us this way. Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, when it comes to last things, says this. 
but we do not want you to be uninformed. Some of your Bibles will say ignorant. We don't want you to be ignorant concerning last things. Brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others grieve who have no hope. So in other words, the Lord wants us to be prepared for what the end times are going to look like, and he wants us to have a refined hope concerning these things. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will, will, will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of a tr the trump of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then those of us who are left, who are alive, will be caught up uh, together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air so that we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, do what? Encourage one another with these words. In other words, this wasn't some private note that, that, that God was writing and handing only to the Thessalonians. We were supposed to prepare our own hearts provide ourselves with a, be provided with a greater, more refined sense of faith about how things will end for, for all believers. And then also we're supposed to be provoked in deeper trust and to also be provoked to provide that same thing to one another and to encourage one another with this. And so if you're out here and you're listening to this message and you're reading these words and you're becoming frightened, you're stopping short of the scripture's full function. It's preparing you for future events. It's providing you with a more refined hope that God knows what he's doing and it's deepening your trust that God has already written the completed story of redemption and our hearts should be glad in that in the meantime because we now have a broader view of the end times. Well, whereas chapter 7 helped Israel appreciate what God was doing on the larger political scene with the movements of kings and then the final chess move with his own king and then the final, final checkmate by taking his kingdom of priests, uh, which are you and I as his church, and having us to be in rule with him. That's what we saw in chapter 7. We saw that, that political sweep. We're now going to drill down and look at chapter 8 because the vision that Daniel receives there is not so much political as it is personal to them and some of the things that they are feeling as a pinch right now. So in chapter 8, listen to verses 1 <clears throat> through 8. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which it appeared to me at the first and I saw the vision, and when I saw it, I was in Susa, the citadel, which is in the providence of Elam. And when I saw the vision, and I was uh, at the Ulai Canal, I raised my eyes and saw, behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns. Both horns were high, and one was higher than the other. And the other horn came up first. And then I saw a ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. And he, uh, and, and he did as he pleased, and he became exceedingly great. 
I'm going to just do a hard pause right there because what we have in this passage, uh, as the angel will come along and help to interpret, and we've also seen these passages of scripture, this prophecy of scripture actually come to fruition. We've seen it already play out in history after this was prophesied, which should encourage our hearts that God knows what he's talking about because Daniel prophesied these events. And this is the advancement of Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great would come in and he would thrust and he would advance northward, eastward, southward, and westward, and he would come and he would advance Greek culture throughout the known world. But what that would do is while, you know, many things were being disrupted and Israel was being obviously disconnected from its native Hebraic culture as, as this new ruler that wasn't uh, necessarily uh, a Semite is coming along, uh, God was still doing something great. You see, as the Greek language becomes the primary language of the known world, it creates kind of the surfboard, if you will, for the gospel to, to go throughout the world. And so God, while Satan, God was doing something good, while Satan may have been prompting these evil leaders or these different types of leaders in their conquest uh, to do something bad, God was doing something good. Or as Daniel, excuse me, or as, as jo uh, Joseph would put it in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, that we should all remember, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about many people to sh who should be kept alive as they are today. Doesn't that ring true today? That while Satan may have threw all of these battles and clashes of kingdoms, thought that he was going to wipe out and suppress the presence of God's people to continue to disassociate them from their homelands and their, their core identity, he actually played into the plan of God by bringing about a single language that would be the source of promoting and supplying gospel literature and language throughout the world. What an awesome God we serve. But God is working both in the foreground and in the background to do what? To prepare, to provide, and to provoke. You see, in, in chapter 8, what God is doing is he is preparing Israel for the, the conquest of Alexander the Great and the advancement of the Greek culture and language so that they are not dismayed by it when they see it happen. But he is also providing Israel with something. He is providing Israel with a hope that during the desolation of their temple, which will happen under the under Antiochus IV, uh, that is verses 9 through 14 tell us a story of another horn that will raise up, and it is going to come in and completely decimate the temple desolate the temple, not destroy it, but to completely and totally disrupt its daily offerings. Now, you got to think about what this would feel like and what the kind of thoughts that this would provoke for Israel. Their understanding of God and their relationship, their health of their relationship with God is, is, is really depicted in the functionality of the temple. That is viewed as the place where God centrally meets with them as a nation. It is the signature of their unique relationship, covenant relationship with God, that he would be their people and they would be, or you know, that he would be their God and that he uh, would be, he would be their God and they would be his people. And that relationship is, is, is the, the, the essence of that relationship is worked out in the temple orchestrations, right? Because that's where they go to, to get forgiveness of their sins. And, and that's where they go to worship and to engage with the 
the priests and to make petitions and to, and to hear prophecy. And so when the temple is in disarray, the people themselves feel in disarray or feel totally disconnected from God. And that is just one of the natures of the exile. And so this particular passage talks about an extended period of disrupted sacrifices where the normal course of worship as Israel knew it would be cut off. Now, you might be saying, well, what good can possibly come out of that? So Antiochus IV, who is being prophesied of in this passage, would actually raise up a statue of Zeus uh, in the temple of God and would disallow, would disallow the effectual and constant worship of God as they knew him. This had to be greatly uh, depressing or defeating uh, and, and concerning and demoralizing for Israel. Why? Their national identity, their land and their culture and their temple are all part of who they are. What makes you Jewish at this point, what makes you children of Abraham is number one, you've got a land of your own, you've got a language of your own, you've got a temple and an engagement with God of your own, and you've got this unique cultural identity of your own. And all of that under Antiochus is totally decimated, if you will. But one thing that serves to be true about God in this, in this time is that he is helping his people to understand that real hope in him Real help from him, real identity in him, doesn't come from your land, your birthright, your temple. It comes from the faithfulness of God who is willing to keep covenant regardless of what disruptions may be taking place in culture. Uh, I want to ask you a question. Where would you get your hope from if your land, your identity, your heritage, your culture, your language, and all that you knew about religion was totally disrupted for years and years. Where would you restore that from? Where would you get this sense of hope from? Where would anybody get their hope from under conditions like these? This is where you get your hope from. You get your hope from the history of God, not the conditions that you're currently under. You get your hope from the history of God. What do I mean? Step back for just a moment and remember where we've been in the passage. Daniel and his, his, his contemporaries have seen Jehoiakim given into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar then give way to Belshazzar. Belshazzar then go by the way of Darius and Cyrus. They've seen, that, that's what they saw politically. They've already seen in their local lives the history of God able to show himself strong and mighty and sovereign as they have watched the transition of four different kings and kingdoms. You see that? They themselves have already seen high-level political transitions with their very eyes and saw God work sovereignly in each one of those kings to keep his covenant with his people regardless of their disassociation from their land, their culture, and all of the other things that made them a Jewish community. Nothing could disrupt their covenant with God. So God has shown himself historically faithful, which means he is permanently and consistently capable. That is the reminder. The history of God for each one of us should serve as a, as a source of hope. The history of God. And where do you understand the history of God and his great works of deliverance? You understand the history of God by reading the words of prophecy. This is how God prepares his people, by giving them a constant lesson in his own personal history. So not only did we see Daniel and his, his um, contemporaries 
work through four different leaders and still be maintained by God, but we saw them also have four to five different personal triumphs, at least that the scripture showed us. Remember the first one? They were met with an opportunity to compromise the dietary statutes uh, that they were supposed to follow as young Hebrew boys, and when they didn't fall into compromise, the Lord still maintained their health in chapter 1. They saw themselves faced with the scourge of impending death that was, uh, uh, that was uh, a death charge that was listed against all wise men uh, in, and magicians and sorcerers in the land. And then they saw God maintain them despite that death personally that was, that was being inflicted upon all others. They saw God deliver them personally from the furnace. They saw God personally deliver them from the lion's den. And so this is the history of God in their own lives. So with this kind of history in the background, they have a great reason to maintain hope regardless of these other desolations that are being prophesied for the future. I want you to understand that there is no waste in God's economy. This is one of the things that I believe that prophecy of scripture wants to provoke in us. So I believe it wants to provide Israel with a, a clear view of the conquest of, of Alexander the Great. I believe it wants to provide Israel with hope during these times of desolation based on God's history in them personally, which we could learn from also. But it also is intent to provoke uh, a kind of faith that there is no waste in God's economy. And when I talk about provoking a faith that there is no waste in God's economy, I want you to consider this. Those experiences that they had from the dietary laws to the lion's den and God keeping them personally, those were not arbitrary moments of faithfulness and deliverance and redemption. They're to, they're to be understood cumulatively. That is, we are invited to all regularly enjoy, be reminded of what I call the cumulative goodness of God. What is the cumulative goodness of God? Is this a fancy term? No. I believe that many believers, when our faith is becoming inconsistent, we only trust God as much as his most recent act of delivering in our lives. In other words, if God hadn't done anything for me recently, then my faith is deflated. But we are, as people of prophecy, we as the people of God, are called to constantly invest in the cumulative goodness, not just the point in time goodness, not just how good has God been to me at this particular point as far as I can feel? But we're always called to look at the cumulative good, like, like the accumulation of God's good. And so I've got the cumul a testimony of God's cumulative goodness in my own personal life, but then the Bible through prophecy has done us an even greater favor of allowing us to benefit from the cumulative goodness of God even beyond our own lives. So look at this in James chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. Count it all joy, right? That's an accounting term. Count it all joy. Cumulative, that's an accounting term. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. In other words, I need to recognize that there is no waste in God's economy. Whether it is a high or a low, I am in position to experience the cumulative, not just the point in time, but the cumulative goodness of God, which is to serve as building perseverance and steadfastness in my life, and also to be a constant source of hope. The history of God is a great source of hope. Let's not handcuff the testimony of God to just what has he done for me lately. Let us look at what he has always been doing historically, and this will help our hearts to be provoked to trust God and trust in the cumulative goodness of God. We all need that, not just Israel. As we turn to chapter 9, the final chapter in this episode, it's one of the heaviest and the deepest. 
And um, Daniel chapter 9 features or provides us with what is known as the 70 weeks prophecy. Hands down, one of the most difficult uh, texts in scripture. Not difficult to read, but difficult to know exactly where to place all of the chronological underpinnings. But here's what we need to know. Read the 70 weeks prophecy, um, if you will, and, and I'll share uh, some of it uh, uh, with us uh, right here. And uh, this is, once again, Daniel is receiving a vision from God. And uh, Daniel, actually, before he receives the vision of the 70 weeks, Daniel is in his room, and he is praying earnestly. Listen to this prayer. In the first year of Darius, the son of Azuerus, by descent, a Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived... Uh, in the books, the number of years according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. I turn my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned before you and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled and turned aside from your commandments. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings and our princes or our fathers, but and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us belongs shame. At this day, we men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away in the lands to which you have driven them because of the treachery that they have committed against you. I want you to see here this great weight of confession and repentance that Daniel is praying not just for himself, but for all of Israel. This is yet another function of prophecy. Prophecy is intended to do what? To prepare, to provide, and to provoke. It is intended to prepare us for repentance. Why do we need to be prepared for repentance? Because without the preparation for repentance, our time before God just sounds us like us up, reading off a list of a few things that we might be sorry for, but not a real heart of deep contrition. And so I want you to listen to, to, to why our hearts need to be prepared by the scriptures. You'll be familiar with this in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. And how from a child you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God, and it is profitable for teaching and for reproof. Anything that the word of God declares to us that we need to be reproved, this is an opportunity for repentance. And for correction, that's something that also needs to be repented of. And for training in righteousness. So the word of God is not just here to stroke us and to comfort us. It is here to also reprove us and to correct us, right? And so if that's the case, we are being prepared for repentance. So as often as I would read prophecy, we're often going to be prepared, our hearts are being prepared and enculturated for repentance, and we desperately need that. It also provides us with a reassurance that God is listening. In Daniel chapter 9, as Daniel prays this deep prayer of contrition and repentance, something else very powerful happens. There is an answer of prayer that is received immediately where he is reminded in these words, while I was speaking, verse 20, while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin, the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord uh, on the holy hill of my God, 
While I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, uh, whom I had seen in a vision at first, came to me with swift flight the time of the evening sacrifice, and he made me understand, speaking with me, saying, O Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding at beginning of your pleas and your mercies uh, that, that it went out. And I have come to tell you that you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word uh, and the understanding of this vision. And so he is earnestly crying out before God, begging for mercy, declaring his own personal guilt, even though he's a man of great faith, declaring the guilt of his nation, even though he doesn't know all of the individual and particular sins. In that moment of declaration and his heart being prepared for repentance, he is through the prophecy of scripture provided with reassurance that God is listening. What an awesome thing to know that God hears me even when my heart is aching deeply. The final provision or the, the provocation of scripture that I believe comes from this particular uh, prophecy in chapter 9 is this. It provokes a, conv uh, a conviction that no, much, no matter how much desolation there is, nothing can disrupt the redemptive plan of God. Chapter 9 talks about a great desolation of the temple and a disruption, a removal of God's people until there is a declared time when they should go back and to reestablish the temple. And then the prophecy goes forward to say that even after the temple is reestablished, that there'll be a time when the, the Son of Man will come. It, it is believed to prophesy of the coming of Christ and that he will be cut off from all of humanity. That is uh, a, a forecasting of his death. Um, and that after that time, the church, which is uh, the church was not necessarily in view through, through Old Testament prophets. This was something that they wanted to look into, but did not. It was a mystery to them. But but there is this window of time in the 70 weeks prophecy where uh, it, it seems to take us right up into the coming of Christ, his ascension. And then this period of time where the, where the church, the people of God experienced great trouble, a tribulation, if you will, until the return of Christ um, to, to, to lead and to gather his people. And so... Every time there is a prophecy that is troubling, the Lord turns right around and shows the triumph of his people and the triumph of his Christ and how he's going to work it out. While today we won't stand here today and, and explore all the four or five prevailing views of the 70-week prophecy, what we will do is at the highest level know this, God wins. God wins. Jesus rules, and his people will rule with him. That no matter how devious a particular ruler may be, that the Lord is never taking his hands off of the steering wheel of human history, and he always has a plan. One of the things that the 70 Weeks Prophecy demonstrates most clearly to me, and I hope it does to you as well, is that no matter how messy things get, the Messiah is right there with us. The Bible shows us that even amid all of the mess, that the Messiah is there on behalf of his people in the midst of it all. And so, Here's what I believe this particular passage or, or this chapter calls us all to do, is that we all need to make repentance for ourselves, our families, and our communities, our nation, a matter of top priority. It was uh, David who said in Psalm 51, uh, verses 16 and 17, that, Lord, you don't desire sacrifices and offering. What you really want is a contrite heart. In other words, Israel... While your temple functionality may be disrupted and totally destroyed, while you may not be able to carry out your religious rituals that give you great comfort, that you have satisfied your righteous obligation to God, while that stuff may be but disrupted, I hope you realize that it was never God's plan that you derive righteousness from your religious, your religious uh, uh, workings in, in the temple. 
that, that you would recognize that real righteousness comes from having a contrite heart before me. This is always God's plan to show us this. And it's always God's plan to show us this, not just Israel, but to show it to us as modern day believers. That we who may be at a time who feel like our religious liberties are at risk, if you feel like something of what makes you close to God is being snatched or taken away, that sense should be offset by the fact that no one can take away a contrite heart. This is why when we read the prophecy of Scripture, let us not skip over reproof and correction. Let us not skip over the scary parts of Scripture, but let those scary moments and those greedy moments and those weighty moments and images and views of Scripture drive us to this. Deep repentance for ourselves, our families, our communities, and our nation. And let that be a top priority in my prayer. Make sure you pause hard, drive slow, in your conversation with God, as we, before we get to our petitions and our supplications and our requests, let us spend a great, deep season of time in confession and repentance. Because, man, if there's ever a language that solicits the heart of God, it's a people who are deeply gripped by the reality that they are desperate without God and that their sin is creating great distance between us and God. He wants to hear that language. And it is evident in chapter 9 because... As Daniel is pouring out his heart for repentance, the angel immediately swoops in and gives him his word of encouragement. So if you want a word of encouragement before God or from God in times where it seems like things are desperate and desolate, start with some repentance and stay there. And if, it, and if you're, you feel like your repentance is complete, then repent and appeal for God's mercy on behalf of your family, on behalf of your community, and on behalf of your nation. And watch God come through and answer. So... Um, I hope you were encouraged. Again, I hope those of you that have lived on uh, uh, opposite spectrums of the eschatological response, um, uh, you know, uh, timeline, uh, I hope we've come a little bit closer. We've got to spend a little bit more time in similar text next week as we take a look at chapters 10 through 11. But our, but our three top applications, I hope you got those, is that we need regular refreshers of our readiness, hope, and trust. Is that... Um, History should become the source of our, God's history should be to come the primary source of our hope. And that um, we need regular reminders of the cumulative goodness of God, not just a point in time. And that we need to make repentance a top priority, not just for ourselves, for our families, communities, our nation uh, as well, if we want a real audience with God. And so um, I'm looking forward to spending some more time in similar texts with you. Hang in there if this was kind of weighty for you. Um, ask God to, to open your eyes and join me by reading in advance. So next week, you know I'm going to chapters 10 through 12. Read it. Pray through it. Don't just wait for me to kind of serve it up. All right? Um, so gospel hope, I've enjoyed spending my time with you uh, this morning. Uh, let's close with prayer. Father, in the name of Jesus, we're thankful to you for just uh, your word and how it gives us a larger and a grander view of how you're going to wrap things up in your son and through the triumph of your people over evil. And um, we thank you for giving us a larger picture of the end game so that right now while we're in the meantime, while we're kind of, whether we be at halftime or just in the first quarter, no matter where we are in the grand scheme of human history, Lord God, let our faith become more consistent that we wouldn't withdraw our investment because it seems like things aren't trending well for us right now. Um, help us to be consistent in you in our development and application of faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.